well? Amen. God's good? Amen. Glad to be here tonight. Thank you for uh, allowing me to come and share with you. And this is the first of four Wednesday nights. And I believe the next one will be, if I remember right, two weeks from now. Uh, Neville's got all the schedule. It's in my phone, which I don't have with me. The subject we're going to be looking at for all the four times we're together is looking at the proper and the mature use of the gift of prophecy. Now, the problem that Neville was um, alluding to here, I did this as a series back in our home church on an off night. I did it on Monday nights. And uh, what I did, it took me 15 hours to work through. And my task is to reduce 15 hours down to four. So please pray. (laughs) Because that means I have to pick and choose how far we want to develop this in any direction. Um, This subject is dear to my heart. And just by way of introduction to it, for a couple of years, I have felt that the church needs to address certain questions and not be in the dark, not be in the gray area about some of these things. One of the areas that I'm presently working on right now to prepare for a seminar, and I would say I'm about halfway done in getting the seminar done, is uh, what do we as churches and believers do with the question of divorce and remarriage? The church has got to address that. A second area that I'm, another area I'm working on is how do we deal with the homosexual issue? And what's the Christian response to that? A third thing I'm dealing with, uh, we're not quite working on it yet, but it's on the list of what do we do in respect to the increasing Muslim influence coming in, into the land and countries and so on. And the other one is responsible use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we are tonight, about responsibility in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And out of what I perceived as a very real need, I I developed a a series that I taught in our home church about the whole thing, not just gifts of the Spirit, but I I zeroed in on the gift of prophecy in particular. And could you believe I get 15 hours of of teaching on the one gift of prophecy, you know? And yet there's so much there in the Bible. And what's maturity, And what is edifying and what's good teaching on the subject? Because the church needs the input of the prophetic gift, very much so. Let's start by going to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read to you verses 4 to 9, which is Paul's standard way of greeting a church through prayer as he prays for the church. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 to 9. Now, listen as I read these verses. I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift 
as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what's interesting to me in these verses is that he begins with thanksgiving for the amazing grace that has been shown to the Corinthian church, and he gives gratitude and thanks to God for the spiritual impartation that you are enriched in all speech. Later in the first Corinthians, you know what he's talking about, tongues, interpretation of tongues, and prophecy. Then he says that you're also enriched in all knowledge, and that would refer to chapters 8, 9, and 10 of 1 Corinthians, where they were fascinated with this gift called knowledge. And there are three particular issues um, that the Corinthians thought themselves very proudful because are we ever spiritual people? Because we are enriched in all wisdom, all knowledge, and all speech. Which, the way Paul writes 1 Corinthians, the first gift of the Spirit, as he mentioned in chapter 12, is the word of wisdom. The second gift of the Spirit, he mentions in chapter 12, is the word of knowledge. And the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians deals with wisdom. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 deals with knowledge. And these are the pet babies of the Corinthians because we operate in spiritual wisdom and spiritual revelation and spiritual knowledge and we're enriched in all utterance as in this excessive speaking of tongues even the tongues of angels that there was a massive pride a spiritual pride that they thought they had really arrived at this elite position i can speak in tongues like an angel and it was a false spirituality a hyper spirituality a spirituality that was divorced from real everyday life but because they had these giftings, they thought of themselves very hyper, hyper spiritual. And Paul, after his opening prayer, immediately in verse 10 of chapter 1, for the rest of the book, starts with correction. Correction, correction, correction. And he has to correct their erroneous thinking about what wisdom is. He has to correct their erroneous thinking about what knowledge is. And he has to correct their erroneous practice of, of all spiritual utterance, whether it be tongues or prophecy and so on. But the point I want to make for now, and I'll come back to it, that though there was much abuse, I'll say that again, though there was a lot of abuse when it came to gifts of the Spirit, Tongues in particular, excessive speaking in tongues without interpretations. Their pride about wisdom, their pride about knowledge, even though they had it and they were really abusing it in such a way that it divided the church rather than edified the church. I want you to see the way he begins this epistle and he thanks God that the church has them. Did you catch that one? He thanks God that the Corinthian church was enriched in all those gifts. And here's what I want to say at the start, is that we have seen so much abuse, so much scandal, 
So much erroneous teaching and erroneous practice when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit that when Paul confronts abuses or erroneous teaching or, or bad practices, listen carefully, he doesn't throw them out of the church. He doesn't deny their existence, and he doesn't say, shy away from this stuff because you got it all wrong. He doesn't shut the Holy Spirit down. He doesn't shut these things out of the church. What he does do is bring correction and bring teaching and bring sound wisdom and sound practice to it so that it is used in a edifying manner. And I think that's so important that we, we see that. And I'll, I'll come back to that point. But personally, I think that it's time for the church to make up for lost ground. We have been functioning far too long without expectancy of God to show up in the ministry of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's time to make her from lost ground. Many of us, many people have spent years, if not decades, attending churches that say they believe in the present ministry of the Holy Spirit, but practice does not seem to have followed belief. We believe in it, but for a variety of reasons, the practice of the gifts of the Spirit have taken a back seat, and they're not allowed their scriptural place even in the church. I will go on record very publicly by declaring that to do the work of building up the church and to do the work of outreach, the gifts of the Spirit are absolutely necessary. You can't build up the church without them, and you can't do evangelism or outreach without them. We can do nothing without the anointing and the ability and the skill and the supernatural giftings of the Holy Spirit. I'm unashamed when I make that statement. We need to be people filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, living in the Spirit, praying in the Spirit, singing in the Spirit, worshiping in the Spirit, serving in the Spirit. We are to be Spirit-inundated people. Amen. Absolutely filled and filled and filled continuously with the Holy Spirit who wants to express himself by creating the character of Christ in us and wants to express himself with the power as well. And these are not options. To me, I can't read my Bible and get any other conclusion to that. Absolutely necessary. They're the tools that God gives to get get our job accomplished. Whoever heard of a, a carpenter or a joiner, as you say over here, and he goes to work, but he never takes a hammer or a saw with him? Whoever heard of that? I mean, that's just nonsense, isn't it? So why do we think we can build up the church and evangelize the world without the tools? Why do we do it? You can't do it. It's not by flesh. It's not by powers, not by might, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. The Holy Spirit comes to wash people, to convict them of their sin, to change them, to transform them, to take out old hearts, to give them a new heart, to change their desires, to transform their minds. The Holy Spirit is very powerful, very active, very real, very alive. He can transform people, change their lives. The Holy Spirit is a speaking spirit. The Holy Spirit is an empowering spirit. I just want the Holy Spirit in every aspect in which he wants to reveal himself. 
Absolutely. You know, um, my message that I preach, and I'm going to allude to this later, when it comes to preaching the gospel, I believe that the message that Jesus preached was this. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. That was his message. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says the kingdom is not word only, but also in power. Everywhere that Jesus went, he healed the sick, he cast out demons. The, The message of the kingdom was this. We preach the gospel because it is our goal to displace the powers of darkness out of people's lives. That's the goal of the gospel. We want people to be transformed, to be changed, to be delivered, to be set free. The message of the kingdom is a message that displaces both physical and spiritual ruin from people. We're here to see transformation of lives. And that takes the empowering and the speaking Holy Spirit. That's the message that Jesus preached. I have been exposed to prophetic ministry, let you know how old I am now, for over four decades. Forty, over 40 years of experience and 40 years of exposure to the gift of prophecy, I have seen the good, I have seen the bad, I have seen the ugly. <laughs> I have seen when it's working right, set churches on fire. Absolutely. I've seen it abused. Some of you know a bit of my story and my testimony that uh, I consider a man, my father in the Lord, who is now 92 years of age, lives in Indiana in the United States, and every three months I pick up the phone and have at least an hour-long conversation with him. Uh, This man, of all the people I've ever met, uh, stands more in the role of a prophet than anybody I've ever seen or ever met. The dreams, the visions, the prophetic word that flowed out of him, the revelation, the revelatory gifting. Uh, He'd bring prophecies to people and he's never met you before in his life and you'd stand in front of him and he would give you a prophecy that would last 20 minutes long and he would go back when you were eight years old, this is where you were and that's what you did and he'd work through your life until where he gets to you are now, and this is how God brought you, and he'd just tell your whole life story, and he's never met you before in his life. And I just grew up with that um, exposure to the power of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and it saddens me, it saddens me that we're not pursuing these things. We need the gifts of God. We need the power of God. And I've got a very, very strong conviction. It's been with me forever. We need to be people of the Spirit. We need to be people of the Spirit. Um, In our charity, when we were living in Canada, on our board of directors that every registered charity has to have, uh, we had a man that was also functioning the role of a prophet. And I would teach, and he would prophesy, and we worked in tandem in in a variety of meetings around the United States and Canada. We often worked together, and the same type of gifting. It was just incredible, revelatory giftings. And I have seen much of what is possible if we would pay the price 
and just press in and press in and seek God and seek God and seek God until he empowers in, in, in mighty spiritual ways. But I'm going to ask you a question, and I've got six answers for this one question. Here's the question. Why have we lost the emphasis on the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Why? Why have they been relegated to the back burner if not denied altogether? Why has that happened? How has that happened? I'm going to give you six reasons that I believe how the church has got to this place. Uh, Reason number one, there's a doctrine called cessationism that I oppose with everything within me. Now, when I say cessationism, do you know what I mean by that term? Cessationism is the belief that the supernatural power of God, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, were only for the first century to you and I, that's 1900, 2000 years ago, and they were needed to kickstart the church. And once the Bible was written, and we now have a record of the New Testament in front of us, there was no more need for God to speak by the Spirit because now we've got the book. That is called cessationism. All right, and now, just for your knowledge, how many times do you want me to come back and do series? But I've also got a whole series on cessationism ready to be preached as well. And just to show how it got formulated, how it got started, and how it's affected church history for the last 500 years. Um, But cessationism is completely wrong. I'll just end it there. It's a false doctrine. It's false teaching. The gifts of the Spirit are for today. And that's not the purpose of my teaching. I'm just going to make the statement. Cessationism, the belief that there's no apostles or prophets, or the belief that there's no function of the gifts of the Spirit, or God doesn't work in supernatural miracles today, is simply false and it's wrong. Just, it's absolutely wrong. Cessationism is wrong. The proper word is, I am a continuist. Now, when I say continuist, it means God never desired for the gifts of the Spirit to ever stop. They are to continue until Jesus comes back. And that's exactly what we read in verses 4 to 9 of chapter 1. Don't come behind and lack in any spiritual gift as you're awaiting for the return of Jesus Christ. There's a verse there that says very plainly that the manifestations of the things of the Spirit are to be the church's inheritance right till Jesus comes back. They're their tools. They're how the church is edified. They're how the church is built up. They're how the world is evangelized. And that's how what brought you and I through the way the Corinthians were saved, according to chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, when Paul preached, it was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration, hear that word, the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The demonstration of it. Romans 15, 18, and 19, Paul says, I don't dare preach unless there is a demonstration of the power of God. And many, many other verses. But the first reason I think this whole thing has taken the back burner is because uh, as a product of the Reformation 500 years back, this doctrine of cessationism, when I, I don't want to go too far because I've got a whole study to preach on this, but when John Calvin and, and Martin Luther and, and the Reformers had to fight against the, the Catholic doctrine of purgatory and so on, 
the Catholics had miracles, they didn't, and so they had to come up with a reason why there were no more miracles amongst Protestants, and the doctrine of cessationism was birthed there, and it's become part of the heritage of the Protestant church. Unfortunately, um, they were wrong. They were wrong. Point number two, I just got to stop there, okay? <laughs> Point number two, a second reason why I think they've taken the back burner is because, um, uh, what? don't stone me over this one, all right? Is because we have substituted the gospel with a message of personal salvation so you can go to heaven when you die. Now, do not misunderstand what I am saying here. The message that Jesus preached was not, take me into your heart so you can go to heaven when you die. The message that Jesus preached was the kingdom of heaven has arrived. But down through the years, there has become a substitute of focusing. We've reduced the gospel message to personal salvation so that you are right with God, so you have a home in heaven. And the gospel has been reduced to that. Now, the gospel of the kingdom includes that. Okay? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If I was to die tonight, I know where my spirit's going. My body will go to the ground, but I will be in the presence of the Lord. I know that. I've got my home with the Lord. I know that. But to reduce the gospel to that is to do your New Testament tremendous injustice. But somehow that has become the gospel rather than the fuller message that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. The third reason I believe that this situation has happened to the church is because there has been a woeful neglect of theology and doctrine. Terrible lack of theology being taught in the churches. Because to me, my observation for those who pursue the things of the spirit that you could watch on uh, the Christian TV and so on is so full of theological and doctrinal errors that it hurts me to even think about it. I am not a fan of Christian TV. I know this is being recorded, but I don't care. I am not a fan of Christian TV because it is so shallow and so theologically inept and so doctrinally unsound that I have really, really struggle with it. I really, really do. There has been so much theological error given birth to so many faulty teachings that the whole realm of gifts of the Spirit has been discredited in the eyes of other churches and in the eyes of the world because it's been associated with inept reading of the Scripture and inept theology. And therefore, just association has really caused this to be discredited. And so, we don't do it. A fourth reason, I believe, is that there have been plenty of poor examples of how it looks when they happen. Poor examples. And I don't intend to make fun of anything, but often what I have seen in, in, in churches when somebody wants to prophesy or whatever, they, they have to get in the shakes. You know, and something seems to, to come over them 
and, 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 and they stutter out as if they're no longer in control of themselves. Folks, that's just bad teaching. That's just poor example. To prophesy should sound as natural as me talking to you right now. And yet there's been such poor examples and, and, and no teaching on delivery and crafting and delivering it that people who just see that say, well, I don't want that. You know, and just poor example has also discredited. The fifth reason I think that this has ended up in the back burner is because, just like I said, there's been a woeful neglect of theology, there has been a real neglect of character issues. A real neglect of character issues. This lack of Christian character has uh, brought discredit to the things of the Spirit. For because some of the people who make the loudest noise that they're spiritual people have the worst character possible. Worst character possible. I have to be careful what words I use because in some countries the word Pentecostal is a bad word. In other countries the word charismatic is a bad word. In other countries, full gospel is a bad word. I don't know which is the bad word here. Uh, in Northern Ireland, I still haven't figured that one out. If I say Pentecostal, people, oh, I don't know. If I said charismatic, we'll stay away from that. Like, I don't know what, how you define these words. But when I say that the movements that are going to emphasize holy laughter and falling on the floor and imparting gifts by prophecy and, and, and praying for the sick and spiritual warfare... That whole realm of, of teaching, that whole movement has been plagued with scandal. It's been plagued with people full of self-seeking pride, self-promotion. There has been preoccupation with money. They, they, there's a failure to see the gifts of the Spirit as an extension, as an expression of the love of God, and they become sensational things to play with rather than expressions of God's love. And they're not seen to function within the context of God's eternal purpose. And people have turned these things of the Spirit into idols. If I said tonight that I'm going to, next time I'm here, I guarantee that I'll prophesy over every person in the room. Guess how many people would be here next time? Now, if I said next time we're coming, we're going to learn how to treat your spouse well, how many think people will come? One, <laughs> two, and their husband and wife, that's good. <laughs> um, you know, in other words, we make idols. We become fascinated with sensationalism instead of being spiritual. And that has brought discredit. And, and people who uh, end up in this, they, they, they become inflated with pride and they become blinded with a false sense of self-importance. And the sixth reason um, I believe is this. Nobody has ever bothered to put together a seminar like this. And there's been no real instruction in any depth about the purpose of the gifts, no real authentic examples for people to follow, and people are simply lost as to what to do. You have to find your own way because you have no leaders that will instruct you and guide you. In it, And when you have to find your own way, and I'll get to this 
this problem is you buy any book on the market and you have no idea what you're buying. You just like the topic and you buy it, but you don't know the author and you have no idea what you're getting into. You have no guidance on it. Well, I will help you with that tonight. I will name who I think you should read and I will even give you names of people I don't think you should read. You will be surprised. (laughs) The problems associated with abuses are so many that many, many churches have taken this tack. We just opt to not embrace it because we don't want to deal with the fleshy mess it creates. So we shy away from it and do it. Some churches have opted to avoid the whole scenario. The whole issue was simply ignored, hoping it will never happen here because we don't want the problems and we don't want the mess, hoping that it will go away. However, what I just stated to you is not unique to our generation. This is exactly what Paul dealt with all the way through 1 Corinthians. This is exactly what he dealt with. The Corinthian church was abundant in manifestations of the Spirit, but they abused the gifts and they were functioning in such a way that it was actually more destructive to the church and brought splits and brought divisions because of lack of character, lack of love, lack of understanding what the gifts were all about. It was actually destructive to the church instead of edifying. Now, Paul's response to the problems of a messy church that got the gifts of the Spirit wrong was not to do away with the things of the Spirit, but it was to give instruction and teaching about it. Now listen carefully, because it's a whole lot easier just to ignore the problem than try to bring correction. But it's not easier, it costs. Why? Because you shut down the vibrant ministry of the Holy Spirit from participating in church services. We can come to church... And if there isn't a prophecy in the last four months, nobody even seems to notice. And I go, excuse me? No manifestations of the Holy Spirit in four months and we're calling this church? That bothers me. How can we do that? Do we not need to hear the voice of God? Do we not need the input of God? Do we not need the revelations of God? Do we not need the wisdom of God? Do we not need the voice of God? Do we tell God the only way you can speak to us is through a preacher? When he has given gifts in order to speak, plenty of different gifts in order to speak, and we're telling God he can't speak that way? No, we've got to realize that the treasure house Uh, through the many different giftings that God wants to speak through, uh, to speak to the church. But you see, what happens now is this takes strong leadership. It really takes strong leadership here. We did this series in our home church to lay down in no uncertain terms that nobody can misunderstand our expectations of people when it comes to moving out in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Here's the problem that every pastor will face. You see what the Bible says, and you want people to come out of their comfort zones, and you want people to step out in the gifts that God wants to use them in. 
But that's dangerous because there's a lot of loose cannons out there. There's a lot of people without character. There's a lot of people who've got their own agendas. And if you open the platform for them, they can just get up and speak their mind and their opinion. And on the one hand, you want to encourage the reality but on the other hand, what the leadership of a church has got to do is make sure that in the process, the church stays safe. And so here's the balancing act that every leadership team has got to work at. How do you encourage the people? And at the same time, how do you keep the church safe? Follow what I'm saying? That, that's the hard issue. Now, there's only one way to do it, and that is through leaders being leaders. Giving instruction, giving counsel, giving teaching, giving example, and dealing with the abuses. Just say, oh, we can't open it up because so-and-so might say something. Well, do me a favor. Why don't you go and talk to so-and-so? Rather than shut the thing down, deal with the abusers. That takes strong leadership. And believe you me, it takes strong leadership leadership because we've had to go through four confrontations in our church history you know it takes strong leadership but I'm repeating Paul gives thanks for the very things that the Corinthian church abused his answer was not shut the thing down his answer was give correction give teaching give instruction and rebuke when it needs to be done and hence you have First uh, Corinthians. What we try to emphasize in our home church is that it says, now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And everybody says, yes, freedom, liberty. Yes, we want freedom, and we want liberty. But I'm saying this. You cannot have freedom if you do not embrace an equal burden of responsibility. Freedom without responsibility is not freedom, it's chaos. It's license, it's not liberty. We want to be people free, but only responsible people can be free. And therefore, the goal in teaching these series where I did, uh, as we did, is to this is what it means to be responsible people. If you want freedom, you have to accept the yoke of responsibility. So we went through things like, what does it mean to be responsible then towards other people in the church? What does it mean? Like, for instance, uh, I'm, just, I'm way off my page here now. It's only page two of about page 60. So, you know, <laughs> um, you know. One thing that, for instance, responsibility. Do I believe in people receiving personal prophecies? Can a person receive a prophecy as an individual? Can God give a prophecy to the whole church? Yes. Can God give a prophecy to one person? Yes, of course. There's plenty of examples in Scripture of that happening. But I tell you what, I believe in personal prophecy, but I made it very clear, I do not believe in private prophecy. In other words, if I hear that you in the parking lot have spoken a word of the Lord to somebody before they get in their car, you will get a visit from me. That is not acceptable or responsible behavior. 
There's no accountability in it. There's no witness to it. And it's just simply wrong. Who can judge it when it's done like that? It's simply absolutely wrong and is not allowable, and responsible people will never do that. And we laid out all these kinds of of ground rules, just mature understanding, so the gift is not discredited by improper behavior or improper practice. So that's just one example. Freedom without government is not freedom, it's lawlessness. Liberty is not to be confused with license. Important principles. So that's the reason that I, I got into this teaching because we, I wanted to train our congregation in the things of the Spirit to help them understand how the Holy Spirit works with a believer, how the Holy Spirit works through a believer, how gifts of the Spirit are to be an expression of the kingdom for building the church and for the work of outreach, and to understand, I want everybody to understand, you can't have freedom unless you're responsible. You know, uh, and I want to build a strong and secure biblical theological foundation of truth so that the things of the Spirit can function in a way that really works and edifies and builds the church. And that was my, my goal. You see, I've also, we have guidelines that we set in our own home congregation. And if, if you are a responsible person, I don't have any problem with you in a church service. You have a word of exhortation, a word of edification, or a word of comfort, and you want to speak it from where you are for the whole congregation to hear, no problem. If you want to walk across the room and give a personal prophecy in private to somebody, then both you and I have a problem. You know, or if somebody feels that they want to bring a word of rebuke or correction or give direction to the church through a gift of prophecy, I will not allow you to do that. You will not do that. What you will do is you will submit it to leadership to judge it before it is given. And that's just common sense and that's just wisdom. Because if you prophesy nonsense, well, the Lord wants this church to get involved in this. That's probably just your opinion. I mean, if you're going to give words of direction, and I make a distinction between the gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14 and what is called the prophet of Ephesians chapter 4, 11, and those are two different realms. And one is not equal to the other. And when it comes to words of rebuke or correction or direction, that kind of stuff, that has to be submitted to leadership before it is released to the people. And uh, that's just the way we work. And I tell people, if you don't like the guidelines, find yourself another church because that's how we do it. We want to keep the church safe. As a leader, as a pastor, as a shepherd, it's my responsibility to make sure that everything that happens in that church service is safe for the sheep. I will not expose them to foolishness. It's got to be safe. And that's important that the sheep know that and so we, we just do this now there are many books out there on the Christian market oh I'm interested in this um, I am a vast reader I have more books in my library than all of you together I'm sure 
I read and I read and I read and I study and I read points of view I don't agree with and I read points of view I do agree with. I read the opposition. I read what I believe. I read what I don't believe. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a vast reader on a lot of things. If you want books on the gifts of the Spirit or you want books on the gift of prophecy in particular, there's lots of them out there. There really is. Not all of them are of equal value. I can tell you that. And unless you are familiar with the authors, you really don't even know what you're getting and you don't even know what the beliefs of the author are. Um, There's been lots of misunderstandings about things called soaking in the Spirit, meditation, relaxation techniques, imaging, visioning, uh, all those things create red flags for me. I just, I can't really find much of that stuff in scripture whatsoever. Um, For myself, um, I do not have an empty mind, as you can tell. I just don't expect the spirit of God to seize me and all of a sudden I'm filled with thoughts I never thought of before. That's not how it works with me. Um, the Spirit of God has many ways of speaking through people, and there's, there's dreams, there's visions, there's impressions, there's feelings. There's a variety of ways that I discuss with our congregation how God can impress his words and his will upon people. Some people see writing. Some people just have strong impressions. Some people see pictures. Some people have visions. Some people have dreams. Uh, there's no one way. There's diversities of operations that the Bible tells about. But here's important, an important principle. At no point should you ever have an empty head. And all of a sudden you just failed. At no point should you just have an empty head. You know, my, this is my testimony. This is me. I reject any revelation that I can't find rooted in Scripture. I just reject it outright. If it's not rooted in Scripture, I have nothing to do with it. I just won't embrace it at all. I do not study with an empty head. I don't meditate with an empty head. I think. I think, I think, I think. Personally, this is me talking. You might be very different personality, but I need isolation. I need to be in a room where nobody else is. I don't want radio on the background. I don't want TV in the background. I don't want music in the background. I want complete and absolute silence. That's me. I just have to have that because if I, there's music going on in the background, that does not help me to study. It distracts me terribly. That's me. That might be, you might, music might help you relax. To me, it bothers me. I just need isolation. What I do is I get in the scriptures. What I do is I look at the context of the scripture. I do what's called exegetical work which means I'm looking at the history, I'm looking at the grammar, I'm, look, I'm just picking it apart word by word, sentence by sentence. I'm trying to get the big context. I'm trying to get the small context. I will pick this thing. And what I do is I work on it, and I work on it, and I work on it, and I just roll it around in my heart, and I roll it around in my mind, and I keep rolling it, and 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 keep rolling it around and around and around on the inside of me until it begins to make a deep impression upon my soul until there comes a burning within my spirit. And that's how I have to wait upon God if I want to hear God talk. That's, that's the way it works with me. But there's diversities of operations, and it might be totally different for you. But that's how I function. I just need 
to, to be in the scripture, open my heart, and let God start just talking to me and talking to me and talking to me. In the last couple of months, um, I've had experiences where as soon as I wake up in the morning, God is speaking to me and actually wakes me up. And I, I'm having to learn that when I go to bed is take pen and paper with me and put it right there because I just wake up and as God is talking to me and if I don't write it down within 10 minutes, probably half an hour later I forget. You know, and just got to write it down then and there. And sometimes what happens is I've been praying for people in the congregation and uh, I just wake up. I, I, I had to go to confess to another man. I said, uh, brother so-and-so, I'm so sorry, but I woke up with your wife on my mind. <laughs> you know, and, uh, but I believe God just spoke something to me for her. You know, and I shared with both him and her together because I wasn't going to share to her in private without him there. And, um, and so this is what I feel God is, is saying to you. And uh, that has been a variety of mornings. Isaiah said 50 verse 4, it says, morning by morning he wakens me and gives me the tongue of the learned. You know, he just speaks. There's a whole variety of ways that God uh, would speak. Um, one of the, a shepherd's or a leader's responsibility is to prepare a table. You know, Psalm 23 prepares a table in the presence of my enemies. Now, what that means is that is the leader's responsibility to go before the flock and to ensure that the ground that they graze on is good ground. He has to go in front of the sheep to get rid of the wolves and the sheep out of the area. He has to go out in front of the sheep to make sure there's not poisonous weeds where they go grazing in the grass. It has to be safe. And when it comes to the things of the Spirit, leadership has to go ahead of the church and make it safe for the people. Really, really do. Now, there are multitudes of authors I would encourage you to stay away from. As I said, I'm a vast reader. And I read and I read and I read. Sometimes I have to read through volumes and volumes of nonsense just to find a gem. Just to get a little gold might require mining through tons and tons of sludge and ore just to find a little piece of gold. Sure, there are, in some books there are nuggets to be found, but in some books there's far more nonsense than there is nuggets. And if you're not discerning, you might take on board the nonsense and even miss the gold that is in it. Um, some of the books out there on this subject are riddled with things called Gnosticism. Some of the books there on the subject are riddled with stuff called mysticism. And some of the books are just irrational. I could give you a list of authors that I would say are very safe for you to read as far as theologically, doctrinally, experientially, very, very good. Uh, my favorite one is a man named Gordon Fee, F-E-E, -E. Gordon Fee. He's my favorite very, very powerful New Testament scholar, Pentecostal, full of the Holy Spirit, sound, sound, sound theology, knows the Lord really, really well. Uh, his books tend to be a little more academic because he's a professor at seminaries, and that's what he's used to doing. But if you can handle academics, powerful, powerful man. 
another guy named Craig Keener, K-E-E-N-E-R, Craig Keener. Tremendous scholar of the New Testament scholar, excellent material. He's easier reading, but he's also academic, but he's excellent material and he's easier reading. And anything I've seen by him is very, very sound. An old, old teacher that's been dead for 50 years, a guy named Donald G. G E E. So you got Fee and you got G. Donald G. G E E. He was known as the Apostle of Balance. And he was around for the first 40 or 50 years of the Pentecostal movement of the first century. And uh, he just brought sound balance and sound teaching and sound correction to abuses in his day. Uh, very, very, very good author. I would recommend him as well. Somebody more recent that has now passed away is a man named Arthur Wallace. W-A-L-I-S. Arthur Wallace. Excellent material. Very good. He was very. He was a pioneer in England, what's called the British House Church Movement. Uh, very, very good. Excellent. Any of his books are, are really good. Uh, no real problem. Another person who has passed away, George Canty, C-A-N-T-Y. Uh, he was almost 100 years old when he passed away, and he's identified with the Elam movement in the early days of the Elam church. He's written some powerful books, and because they're so old, you can buy them for a penny. It cost you 280 to get it delivered, but only cost you a penny to buy it. Uh, but again, exceptionally good material exceptionally good material. Um, still living today over in London, Greg Haslam, H-A-S-L-A-M. He's written some material that generally is, is very, very sound, very good. You won't go wrong in reading Greg Haslam. Um, there's a lady out there. Um, uh, uh, she must be quite old now. Iverna Tompkins, T-O-M-P-K-I-N-S has a book called Out of the Whirlwind, which is a study on prophecy. Very, very, very good. It's, it's the, the gift of prophecy in the book of Job. Very, very good. And there's another man, um, R.L. Brandt, B-R-A-N-D-T, um, who was the presbyter of the Assemblies of God in the United States. And he has written some books uh, that I thought were very, very good as well. There's a lot of good authors out there. You don't want to hear who I'm suspicious with, do you? Yes. You sure? Yes. You don't watch Christian TV, do you? People I'm suspicious of. Mike Bickle, Kansas City Prophets. I'm very suspicious of him. It doesn't mean there's not some gold there. But the reason I, I, I'm suspicious of him is because his method of interpreting scripture is esoteric. Now, what that means, he likes to read the Bible through the eyes of allegory instead of the plain meaning of statements. He will build his theology on the Song of Solomon and an interpretation of the book of Revelation, and that would be his beginning point for building his theology. Folks, that's just not a good place to start. It doesn't mean there's not some nuggets in there and some truths and some demonstrations of God, but theologically I can't embrace it. 
Another one I, I struggle with is the, what's called the Kansas City Prophets. I just can't embrace it. Too much error, far too much error for my liking in their practice. You may have heard of a couple. I don't know if they're still alive anymore, but their books are famous. John and Paula Sanford. Uh, they were big into inner healing teaching. And they were based upon mysticism rather than upon scripture, but they found their way into the Christian market quite easily. Um, have you heard of Bill Hammon? H-A-M-O-N. Again, a powerful prophetic ministry, but I would not trust his teaching. He has uh, teaching about apostles and prophets as an end-time army that's going to take over the world. And to me, he has, he's full of spiritual revelations that add to the scripture rather than expound the scripture. I struggle with that. Jack Deere, famous, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, got kicked out of it because he got baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, does God use him in gifts of prophecy? Yes, he does. But again, in reading his material, I just cannot be uh, at rest with it. Just too much association with Kansas City prophets. Now here's the one, don't throw stones at me, because this is a famous one. Bill Johnson of Bethel, Redding, California. See, I told you, there's all the ooze out there. Very famous. The Jesus culture music uh, is worldwide, very famous. Very inspiring. You watch them on YouTube, these, the music videos they have. Very powerful. Great move of the Holy Spirit. But he, when you start reading their theological foundation to there, he is anti-scholastic, which means he has no respect for official training in exegetical work. He's made that statement many times. He thinks that study is a work of the flesh. Uh, he's made that statement many times. He believes in what's called the kenosis, that Jesus quit being divine when he became a man. He has made that statement. And he also believes in uh, the ability to impart gifts from one person to another through laying on of hands, which is not possible. And yet he espouses that. And their school, the supernatural that he runs, practices all the above. And therefore, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I just cannot embrace it. I know he's famous, I know he's got more books, and everybody likes to read them. I'm sorry, I cannot embrace the theology, the foundation. Doesn't mean that God doesn't use them, doesn't mean there's not miracles, does not mean that he's sincere, does not mean uh, that he doesn't mean well, but just theologically inept. That I just, I, I wouldn't say read that because you're going to pick up a lot of stuff that I don't think will do you good. You ready? What more names? Should I keep going? I mean, that was the big one. That's the big one. People associated with the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, Peter Wagner, you know, and there's a variety of apostolic networks out there. Uh, here's my problem. A super class of apostles and prophets who are going to shape the whole world for the coming of Jesus. And their teaching is that every church has to come under their apostolic authority to be legitimate. 
If there's not an apostle over your church, you're not a legitimate church. That's what they teach. There's all kinds of people associated with that. Here's another one. Do I dare keep on going here? <laughs> nobody's throwing stones at me yet. You have some of you aside and you know, <gasps> didn't know, but nobody's throwing stones. Uh, there's a list on the internet called the Elijah list. I shouldn't tell you these things because you probably go and look them up. <laughs> but uh, it's just associated with uh, crazy stuff. I don't know what you think of Todd Bentley. But no, no, no. Absolutely not. Don't even touch him. Don't even go near him. You know, he was banned from coming into the UK for a reason. You know, um, here's another one. Lord, how did I get so bold as to say all this? Anything that ends with house of prayer at the end of its title. IHOP. International House of Prayer because they're associated with the Kansas City Prophets. And again, they might have good intentions, but I've done my research, I've done my theology, I've done my doctrine uh, looking at these things. And I've just got to be honest, I struggle with them. I struggle with them. I struggle with them. I think they read into Scripture what's not there. Over the years, you've heard of things like this. You've heard the term latter rain. You've heard the term the manifest sons of God. You've heard Joel's army. You've heard word of faith. You have heard strategic level spiritual warfare. You've heard that. Now, what that means is when you pray, you attack principalities and powers in the heavens. You see, you didn't know it, but over Rich Hill, there's a principality in the air. And if we want to evangelize Rich Hill, we have to somehow tackle in spiritual warfare a principality over the city. And if we could tackle that angel and take it down, then all of a sudden the, the, the city will open up to the gospel. It's called strategic level spiritual warfare. Very, very popular in its day, but very, very wrong. There's also been a lot of teaching about apostles and prophets. Now, listen carefully. Can a person be an apostle today? Yes. Can a person be a prophet today? Yes. Yes, there are apostles. Yes, there are prophets. But scripturally, I believe that they function, their their functions within a church. But there's a movement called the Apostolic uh, Reformation and the, the teaching goes like this, and that down through the decades, God has been restoring. In the 1990s was the restoration of the office of a prophet, and after that is the restoration of the office of an apostle. I'm sorry, they're not offices. They are functions. It's wrong to say the office of a prophet. It's wrong to say the office of an apostle. It's wrong. Nowhere in the Bible are they called offices. They are functions. But this movement has taken those two terms, apostles and prophets, and turned them into governmental offices, and every church has to be under the office of an apostle or a prophet, or both, or you're not a legitimate church. And that's out there as well. 
Now, all those things that I just said to you, manifest sons of God, latter rain, Joel's army, came to a head in 1949. How many of you were alive in 1949? I wasn't. (laughs) They came to a head in 1949, all of these teachings. And there was the big, there was five things that were taking place in so-called Pentecostal spirit-filled groups. Five things that the Pentecostal church says, we've got to address this because this is doctrinally wrong and it's, it's just leading to excesses and so on. And one of those was, is uh, impartation. Now, what I mean by impartation is this. I've got the anointing. Would you like it? Come here and let me lay my hands upon you and I will prophesy over you and through the laying on of my hands, the gift of healing somehow is transferred from me and it's gone to you. Now I've done this. Go and do likewise. Very, very, very popular even today. Very popular even today. It doesn't work that way. Impartation must come from the Holy Spirit, from God himself. I can give you nothing. You've got to receive from God. You don't receive from me. It is God who distributes the gift as he wills. It's not me who distributes them. This kind of thing was going on in the 1940s in the Assemblies of God, and they had to have a meeting, and it was put to bed in 1949, and the Pentecostal churches says this stuff is just not right, and it's error. And if you can, you can, you can Google this on the internet if you want. Go 1949 Assemblies of God fight heresy, something like that, and you'll get the whole story, and it's all there. And all those teachings were put to bed. And it, but the thing is, they went underground. And what happened in about the 1970s and on? All those teachings that the Pentecostal Church once put to bed have started to resurface in charismatic churches. And all of these practices that were condemned as heretical in 1949 have crept into independent, charismatic, Pentecostal types of of churches and have been very, very strongly propagated, especially on Christian TV. As you can tell, I'm not a big fan of it, of, of the Christian television and so on because in order to stay on the air I have to preach what you want to hear not what the truth is you know and I just I'm just not going to uh, go there I'm just not each of these movements have their own versions of how prophecy works so my question my warning is this you really just be careful of what sources you decide you will feed from if you have any doubt about an author why don't you ask me? I've probably researched them. i probably researched them. And if I haven't, I will. I could tell you what publishing houses preach, produce books that have what point of view. I could tell you such and such a publishing house, they, everything that they preach comes out of the apostolic restoration movement. The whole publishing house any book by them is is that there's there's a a version of the bible that just came out what was it called um a version of the bible um 
oh, I can't recall the name of it. But it's, it's meant to be inspirational reading. It's meant to uh, poetic, how to read the Bible poetically, a new version out there. The Passion, that's it. Yeah. Do you want my opinion? It is written by a man who is dedicated to the NAR, New Apostolic Reformation, and he reads New Apostolic Reformation into the Bible and into his translation. Instead of saying what the Bible says, he's added their point of view throughout through the whole book. The whole Bible is written to promote the New Apostolic Reformation. So don't read it. You know, but people don't know that. They just think this is a wonderful way of reading the Bible, the passionate. You read it to, to inspire passion in you as you read it and get inflamed emotionally as you read it, and you have no idea that as you read it, you are reading their doctrines written into that Bible. You were totally unaware of it. You know, so uh, if you have any doubts, ask me, because I have studied their histories. I know their Bible schools, and I know what doctrines they disseminate. I know what published companies they use. And I know what influences uh, they, they use to get their stuff out. Researching all that stuff has been the burden of my heart because that's part of my role as a pastor to keep the church safe. To keep the church safe. Very quickly here, let me try to finish this here because I, I've got 15 hours of this stuff to go. Uh, very quickly, some of the things to try to bring this end. Why do genuine initiatives of the Holy Spirit often end up in shipwreck. Something that things begin well, but don't end well. You know, a lot of people who grew up in uh, more denominational type of churches felt there was something missing. And then what happened is they got involved in some sort of spirit-filled home group or, or charismatic church or faith church or something, and they found some reality of the spontaneity of the Holy Spirit and they discovered gifts of the Spirit and they discovered praise and worship and they discovered uh, being led by the Spirit and they all went through great, great seasons. But after a period of time, the novelty of the thing wore off on a lot of people. And then you ended up what we believed was shallowness. And then you went back into a variety of traditional type of churches becoming satisfied with that, but there's a longing in your heart for more and a desire for more, and you just live with dissatisfaction. And I don't think that's any way to live. I really don't. Um, why does this happen? I'm going to give you a variety of reasons. I've got five reasons uh, what, I, what I think here. I'm going to try to, to wrap this up quickly. Why does some crash? Is because when you've made alive in the Spirit, You'll eat anything without discerning what you're eating. You just take it all in and you're so hungry. But you have no idea what you're taking in. And people have taken in a lot of bad doctrine in the name of real hunger for God. You're just absorbing everything you get your hands on. But what, not everything you absorbed was good for you. And, and you end up, you know, when your mother was not healed as she was supposed to be healed because that's what the book said, and she died anyway, folks, that's pretty devastating when it didn't work. Well, you know what? Their interpretation of the scripture was wrong. And I could do a seminar for you on 
if you want about is healing, physical healing guaranteed by the atonement. You know, and there's groups there. God has to heal. His word says it's heal. God is forced to heal. I can command God to heal. By his stripes I am healed. And on and on you go. And I can just show you how wrong that is. And you're not even being biblical or scriptural in that approach. There are a lot of people took it on board because they're hungry. The things of the spirit are here. The supernatural power of God. Let's see people healed. Let's pray for people. And when it doesn't work out the way you were taught, it's pretty devastating. It doesn't mean the spirit's not real. It just means what you taught was not correct. So there's been some come crashing because of a lack of sound theology. Another reason, and this is what we really emphasized in our Monday nights when we taught this, some movements crash because there's a failure to do what the Bible says. What's that? Hold people accountable for what they prophesy. In our church, they all get recorded. I have the proof you said. Hold people accountable for what they prophesy. There is a failure to judge prophetic words. The Bible says let the prophets speak and let the others judge. What we do is we let prophets speak and nobody judges. Everybody goes out the building and nobody's passed judgment. When people submit to us prophetic words to share with the church, the church has the knowledge that before that word even gets delivered, that the leadership has judged it and is worthy of hearing. Prophetic words are judged where we are and people are held accountable for it. Not doing that creates havoc. A third reason churches have crashed is because of undisciplined flesh. It's amazing when the spirit moves how the flesh will move with it. Undisciplined people, unaccountable people. Um, I could tell you of meetings here in Northern Ireland where the prophets have gathered for a conference. All the prophetic people have gathered for a conference. And I said, well, who are these prophetic people? Do you want to know who they are? They're all the loose cannons that will submit to no church anywhere. Who have no accountability. And they just get together to prophesy pleasant things to one another. Undisciplined flesh. How many know the people can get out of hand sometimes? Has to be dealt with. Another reason that I think a lot of things have crashed is because we have allowed manifestations to turn into doctrine. What do I mean by that? Well, there was movements years ago for those who were involved in it that every meeting, the sign that the Spirit was there, that you were slain in the Spirit. So you have to fall on the floor as a sign that you're really in the Spirit. And that became the standard by which the Spirit of God was really moving. And you know what I say to that? Nonsense. Nonsense. Now, over the years, over the decades, I have prayed with a lot of people. I've laid hands on a lot of people. Over the decades, I am not exaggerating, say, if I said through my laying hands on people, thousands of people have hit the floor. Touch them and they're gone. Sometimes just stand in front of them and they're gone. 
demonstrations of people just falling out under the power. I could tell you of meetings that Darla and I had 40 years back when we were pioneering our church and gifts of the Spirit were being manifest. I could tell you stories of, you know, you're in Acts 2, a great mighty wind rushing through the room. I could tell you a story of when I was like this in front of the congregation and a wind from behind me was a gentle wind just literally went through the congregation and people just went down right where they were. Nobody praying for them, nothing. Just the power of God just went through the building. I don't have a problem with manifestations. I have a problem with making them the criteria to judge whether a person is spiritual or not. Now, there I do have a problem. Because not everybody acts the same. Nobody has the same reaction. To turn that into a standard litmus test is completely wrong. But it became a fad. We come to church because we just can't wait to see everybody fall on the floor. What are you doing? Why? What's the point of it? Now, here's another one. This comes close to home to me because I have received personally this criticism many times from spiritual people. And here's, here's the criticism. Some movements have crashed because there's a tendency to belittle the office and the function of a teacher. They don't like the teacher because, oh, he's got to study in the word and he's got to do all that exegetical and hermeneutical work and he's got to read the commentaries and he's got to read the Greek and he's got to read the Hebrew. That's just all works of the flesh. And that the teaching gift has been belittled as if that's not really bringing the word to the people. I could tell you a story where I... I was at a place not far from here, actually, in Northern Ireland, where I preached and taught. I gave a, a good word, I believe a good word from the scripture that God had laid on my heart. And after I was finished, the man got up and said, well, now we need to hear from God. As if the teaching was worthless and just a work of the flesh. And there's been a belittlement of hard work as if the Holy Spirit just downloads everything in you instantly. I wish. I wish. So let me finish by saying this, because I'm well over my time. Uh, There are Pentecostal churches that have strayed from the roots, and the result is there's little or no Pentecostal expression even in Pentecostal churches. They just happen to be a little livelier in their song services. On the other hand, there are movements and churches that are undiscerning as to what they believe and swallow everything that comes their way. Influenced by all kinds of error and practice, and yet they become very militant in preaching what they believe. Because I don't know why they're so militant in it. Uh, very militant, you know. You've got to be healed. There's no choice. You know, just Militancy. And why they are, I don't know. I I wish I do know. They tend to remain unteachable, independent, and they resist adjustment or correction. If anybody tries to bring correction to them, and I have been told this to my face, you have a spirit of control. Do I? Well, let me exercise it right now. 
do I have a spirit of control? You're just a freelancer. You are enamored with your own private relationship with God, and you are submission to nobody, and you're independent of the local church, and you won't bother to work out the necessary hard work of developing relationships with people in everyday life. You're so super spiritual. Folks, sometimes it's hard to be a leader. It's hard to lead people. It's hard to shepherd a flock when you have to deal with all of these things. But nevertheless, the body of Christ, with all its faults, is still the vehicle of God's purpose. God's program is the local church, local church and you better belong to one. And you better have a fellowship of some sort and some accountability and one another relationship somewhere because God's program is not to bypass his church. And that's where God wants to make himself known, and that's where God will make himself known. I've carried this burden of what I just shared with you for a very, very long time. Very long time. My goal, my burden is this. I want you to be people of the word, and I want you to be people of the spirit. I don't want you to be people of theology without knowing the Holy Spirit, but I don't want you to be people of spiritual experience and you are not grounded in good theology and good doctrine. Word and spirit are not meant to work separate from each other. They are to go together. They are to go together. My, my, my last thought, and with this I'll close because I can keep having last thoughts here. You know, if you've ever been on an airplane, it just keeps on circling before it lands. I mean, that could be me trying to end here. You know, here's my final circle. <laughs> At least I hope it is. <laughs> here's my final circle. And that is when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, what happened there is Jesus submitted his spirit-filled experience to the scriptures. Satan tried to get him to operate spiritual things outside the parameter of the scriptures. Turn these stones into bread. Prove who you are. Um, do something for yourself. Well, Jesus being a servant will never do anything for himself. The power of God is not to serve yourself, it's to serve others. And there's an important lesson. If you want God to trust you, you better prove to him that you're a servant. Or else he won't trust you. If he can't see a servant's heart, you only get trusted so far. You want God to fully trust you, you demonstrate to him you've got a servant's heart. He'll test you on that. See, I went around the circle again there. <laughs> you know, but but in, in the wilderness, Jesus said, look, I can't do that. I cannot use my anointing, my gifting, my ministry for that reason because that would violate the scripture. The scripture says man does not live by every by bread alone, but he must live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what he did is he took his anointing, his gifting, his spiritual gifting that God gave him, and he submitted it to the scriptures. The spirit must agree with the scriptures. Must. Must submit to the teachings of scriptures. Must not be independent of the scriptures must be, there must be a unity of the word and the spirit in submission to one another 
for us to be the people that God wants us to be. There, that is four pages out of about 60. But that's my heart and that's my burden. Now, what I need to know, and we could chat about this after I'm finished here, is where do you want me to take this? What are your questions about prophetic gifting, the role of a prophet, the role of a gift of prophecy, abuses, guidelines, maturity, how do you test a prophecy, how do you release prophetic word in the church, where do you want to go with it, because I've got far more material than we're going to have time for. So tell me, and I'll see what I can do about it, because I probably have all kinds of notes on it already. Let's pray.